On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here with uh, Ecclesiastes Meaningless Life Part 16. Today's message title is Butter Knife Logging, and we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8, through chapter 11, verse 6. And... Uh, I don't know if you've been to a bookstore recently. I know most people don't go to bookstores anymore, but every once in a while, us old guys will swing in on one. And in every bookstore I've been to recently, there is a whole section of books that are really sort of self-help, leadership, management, productivity, effectiveness category. And uh, lining the shelf are books with photos of highly successful people that most of us know. Some of these people are athletes, some are business leaders, some are politicians. What they all share in common is somehow they became incredibly successful in their field, standing out from everyone else. And as a result, eventually they earn the right to uh, write a book and tell the rest of us how their mind works, how they organize their life, how they overcame their obstacles and adversity. And this trend is not new. In fact, about 3,000 years ago, the most intelligent, successful, and richest man in the world sat down to, uh, to write his own memoir. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that man named King Solomon wrote that book called Ecclesiastes. That's where we find ourselves in this 18, I believe it is, part series. And today we get into Ecclesiastes 10, 8 through eleven six, And here Solomon starts writing in a style that reads a lot like another book he contributed to and edited called Proverbs. And what you see there are fortune cookie-like pithy statements that are the equivalent of an ancient social media post. And so if you read Proverbs, if you've never done that, it's pretty fun. It's like a whole bunch of fortune cookies or a whole bunch of tweets. And uh, this section of Ecclesiastes is written in that same style. And the whole point is that um, they're trying to communicate truth in a way that is brief, that is penetrating, that is insightful, and is memorable. Uh, to use a marketing slogan, it's got a hook. There's a stickiness factor. And each one of these provides good advice. So the storyline of the Bible is primarily about the good news of the work of Jesus Christ. God became a man, lived without sin, died for our sin, rose as our forgiver and savior. And, um, and the storyline, the trajectory, the big idea of the Bible is good news. But along the way, along the storyline, the Bible also provides some good advice for God's people. The good news is about the forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Christ, and the good advice is to make life better along the path toward God's kingdom. And the reason for this is really simple. God cares not only about your eternal life in heaven, He also cares about your life here on earth. He doesn't want you to just have a great life after you die. He wants you to begin experiencing that eternal life before you die, right now, today. 
And the only way this kind of life is possible is through wisdom. And that brings us to the theme of the great book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is practical. It's very practical. It's not necessarily theoretical. It is intensely practical. If you're a person who you wouldn't want to read a huge book because it's just belaboring with a ton of footnotes and perspectives and history and arguments and speculation and controversy. You just want to know, just boil it all down, get to the bottom line, tell me what to do. If you're that kind of person, you're going to love the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is practical and it helps us make decisions in life that save us from harm and promote life and health for us. And something I want to tell you too before we jump right in, that wisdom is more about principles than methods. Methods are do this, do that. If you've ever put together IKEA furniture, it's all about methods. Step one, step two, step three, step four. They never tell you step seven, which is yell at the IKEA furniture and throw the little monkey wrench across the room. But nonetheless, it's all about methods. Step one, step two, step three, step four. Wisdom literature is not like that kind of step-by-step -step manual. It's more about the principles, getting to the heart of the matter and trusting the Holy Spirit to help us by applying the principle to our life. So there's principles and methods, and the wisdom literature is concerned a lot with the principle, the heart, the big idea, trusting that you, through wise counsel and the Holy Spirit and experience, will come up with your own methods. And for this reason, wisdom applies to the very things that tend to cause us the most pain in life, our relationships, our finances, our family, our leadership decisions, our life at work, our finances and wealth, our intimacy with our spouse, and our emotional life, the kinds of things that we tend to get most frustrated by, the, the kind of things that tend to dominate the headlines on the rack at the self-help books uh, at the grocery store and the, and the magazines that, 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 that litter our way uh, to the checkout line. These are the kind of things that talk show hosts are always sort of stumbling over and, and people are, are, are constantly bantering about on social media, the, the practical, frustrating, difficult, complicated decisions and choices in life, some of which are not between what is sinful and holy, but what is wise and foolish. And so here he's going to give us today 15, it's a lot, 15 principles for wise living and making wise choices in Life. Number one, consider the downside. Principle number one, consider the downside. He says it this way, Ecclesiastes 10, 8, 9, when you dig a well, you might fall in. When you demolish an old wall, you could be bitten by a snake. When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. There's our Freddie Flintstone verse. When you chop wood, there is danger with each stroke of your axe. Echoing this, in our own culture, we have a similar statement that might come back to bite you. The point is simple. Every activity comes with an inherent danger. Everything and everyone has a shadow side, has a downside. So when making a decision, especially an important one, we have to do all we can to consider the downside. Now, some of you are this person, this kind of personality where you immediately inherently just consider all the downside, the negative. Um, some of you, however, you don't. You see the upside, the opportunity. You're the person who is a visionary. You're a leader. You, you don't have a high-risk radar. Uh, you only see the opportunity, not the opportunity for failure. 
And so the questions are when we're making a decision like where do I work or who do I marry or what church do I attend or where do we live or should we buy this house or buy this car or should we engage in this business dealing or whatever the case may be, what is the unintended negative consequence that could occur? How could this backfire? What's the downside? What's the shadow side? What's the dark side? What have we missed? These are the kind of questions leaders in the home business and church need to consider. Need to consider. Um, number two, principle number two, sharpen your axe. This is a fun one. Ecclesiastes 10.10, using a dull axe requires great strength, so sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. Well, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest where there's a lot of trees and a lot of loggers. And loggers have particular tools for chopping down giant trees. Uh, among their tools is not included the butter knife. Why? Because there's something wrong with a butter knife? No, the butter knife is a perfectly good instrument, but not necessarily for logging. Do they not use a butter knife because it's sinful to log with a butter knife? No, I don't think anybody's going to hell because they went logging with a butter knife. Butter knife logging is not sinful, it's just foolish. And, and some people live their lives like butter knife loggers. They're, they're not necessarily doing sinful things, they're doing foolish things. Or they're doing things in a foolish way, an unproductive way. They, they waste lots of time and energy only to get minimal results. I know one guy spends 10 minutes a day looking for his car keys. Can't figure out that maybe a hook near the front door or a little bucket to chuck them in or a drawer to leave them in would be a good way to go. I know a, a gal who literally loses her phone and spends 15 minutes a day looking for it. She should probably come up with a plan what to do with it. Um, some people are like butter knife loggers. They're disorganized. They're scattered. They're, they're, they're not doing an evil thing. They're, they're doing something, though, just in a foolish way. They don't need to be rebuked because they're in sin. They need to be instructed because they don't know what they're doing. Some of you have messy minds. You're, you're naturally cluttered, unproductive, absent-minded. For me, it's simple things like I have a notebook and I write a lot of things in it, including the things I need to get done every day. I keep really close attention to my calendar and try to get as much information there as I possibly can. My wife and I, we share a calendar uh, so that we can see what the other is doing and we can coordinate our lives together. Just simple things, time savers, shortcuts, ways to just get life put together. Foolish people, he says, they're life, like butter knife loggers. Uh, they waste a lot of time and energy. They get minimal results. And so the question is, how can you make your life more efficient? That's the question that Solomon is driving at. The answers need to be very personal and very practical. Do you need to organize your home? Some of you say, well, I don't have time to organize my home. Well, the, the time you spend organizing your home is probably going to save you so much time after that that it's actually in your best interest. How about your workspace? Is it cluttered, disorganized, mismanaged? How about your calendar? Is it a mess? Or your technology? Does it even work? Have you used your upgrades and updates? You know, is your internet so slow that basically people on dial-up feel sorry for you? Are there things in your life that you just need to get put together so you can be more effective and be more efficient. Again, it's not a sin for a guy to go out and try and chop down a tree with a butter knife. It's just futility. Do you need to go to bed earlier at night so that you can be rested? Do you need to get new technology or tools that are 
more efficient. My dad was a carpenter and a construction worker. And I tell you, if, if he didn't have the right tools or tools that work, he wasn't going to get much done during the day. It's same thing holds true in the tech industry. As simple as it is right now, I'm looking at two computer screens as I chit chat with you. Because for me, I like having a second screen with my laptop just because it increases my productivity. I can have multiple pages open at the same time and try and coordinate documents more effectively. Just simple things that save a lot of time, that make life easier, that make things more productive. Some of you are naturally this way. This is just how your mind works. Some of us have to work a lot harder. And it would be really helpful for those of you who need to learn these things to ask your friends who are good at it. How do I organize my house, my schedule, my budget, my life? I can't find my paperwork. My car keys get lost. I, I feel like I'm working hard, but I'm not getting a lot done. And for those of you who are wise, those of you who are organized, those of you who are efficient, those of you who have learned how to sharpen your proverbial axe, don't just get frustrated with those people. Be your spouse, your coworkers, your friends, your kids. Be a teacher. Help them learn. Help them learn. I've got five kids, a couple of them. Holy smokes, they're incredibly organized. I never have to ask, is your homework done? What do you have tomorrow? They're just there. Their room is organized. They make their bed every day. Um, they set out their clothes the night before. They pack their lunch the night before. And they're working on their projects weeks before they're due. I've got other kids. It ain't that way. Their, their room looks like an episode of Hoarders meets a hurricane, and they don't know what's due last week, and it's already too late. I mean, it's we got to stay on it. We got to help them. We got to train them. We got to help them be organized. We need to help them uh, put together systems and ways of doing life that just work for them. Some of you get a little ashamed by this. Don't. Don't. Just be humble and seek a wise friend who can help you learn these things. And for those of you who know these things and you get frustrated with those who don't, well, maybe what they know is how to love well and you could learn from them how to be better on the relational side. Anyways, principle number three, act before it's too late. Ecclesiastes 10.11, if a snake bites you before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? Well, in our day, let's just be honest, uh, snake charming is not a real upward trending career path. Not a lot of kids in college saying, yeah, I want to get a minor, maybe even a major in snake charming. But in that day, I guess it was kind of a thing. And the entire goal of snake charming is to get the snake to obey you. So what you're doing, you're interacting with something that is dangerous and you're trying to master it and have it submit to you so you can be in charge of it. But sometimes the snake charmer would uh, show up and the snake would bite them before they could tame them. Well, that's not very good because now you're dead, not in charge. The point is simply this. There are times you have to make a difficult or even a dangerous decision and unless you act quickly, it'll be too late and you'll be harmed or killed. Uh, this could end your marriage. This could end your business. This could end your family. This could end your life. Some things in life are very urgent. Other things in life aren't. There are things in our life that give the impression that they're urgent because they have rings and buzzers and notifications. And sometimes I think the phone gives us a completely inaccurate impression of what is actually urgent. The key in life, at least according to wisdom, is to know what is urgent and what is not urgent and not to allow those things that are not urgent to overtake those things that are urgent. 
Practically speaking, this means if you're a person that even puts together a to-do list every day, which I do and you should, that list needs to be prioritized so that the most important things are done first. Those may be the things that you're waiting to get to later in the day, but those are so important. If you don't get them right now, they're literally going to bite you. Principle number four, watch your words. Chapter 10, verse 12, 13, and 14. Wise words bring approval, but a fools are destroyed by their own words. Fools base their thoughts on foolish assumptions, so their conclusion will be wicked madness. They chatter on and on. No one really knows what is going to happen. No one can predict the future. Let me ask you a question. Not a trick question. Who's the most influential person in your life? Think about it for a moment. Who's the most influential person in your life? Well, for everyone listening, it's the same answer. You are. You are. No one speaks to you more than you do. No one spends more time with you than you do. No one gives more counsel to you than you do. You're the most influential person in your life. So the question begs, what do you, what do you say to yourself? Are you giving yourself wise counsel? See, it is important to realize that we cannot always trust ourselves. The truth is, you can talk yourself into most anything. You can even make craziness evil, awful, sound plausible. You can even convince yourself that you know the future, exactly what's going to happen. You may even be so convinced you can convince others. Here's the truth, though. We have a limited insight, and we're not the most objective person to view our own lives. We're all blind to our own blind spots. So we need to not always trust ourselves, but instead invite others to speak to us and counsel us. His point is this, just like a doctor shouldn't perform surgery themselves, or a therapist shouldn't do their own counseling session with themselves, people shouldn't believe everything they think they should invite others in to counsel and instruct them. So who else do you seek for counsel? And here's the point he's driving at. If you want to sin, if you want to do evil, you can find an expert with a degree to endorse it. So you need to seek wise counsel, which means emotional impetuous decisions are prone to folly and picking bad friends is a bad idea. I, I even, I'll give you some examples recently. Fools base their thoughts on foolish assumptions, and their conclusions will be wicked madness, he says. They chatter on and on. When you oppose them, they'll say, no, 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 here's my reasons, here's my evidence. Dr. So-and-so in this poll from such-and-such declares. But sometimes crazy stuff gets passed around, especially in the age of the internet. I've seen articles recently. How adultery can save your marriage. What? How pornography can save your marriage. What? What? That's crazy. That's madness. But then they pull out people who say, well, this is what we did, and we were going to get divorced, but instead we did this, and now we just mutually accept sin in our marriage, and it's really held it all together. And so, you know, praise be to porn, praise be to adultery, praise be to folly. We're doing just great. That's crazy talk. Well, we're, here we have Dr. So-and-so, and he's got a tie and a jacket with 
you know, brass buttons and a beard with gray hair. And he quotes a study done by official people who, with more degrees in Fahrenheit, apparently knows what he's talking about. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So what he's talking about at principle number four is watch your words, the words you say and the words you hear, the words you give to others for counsel, and the words that you receive from others for counsel for you. Principle number five, make a plan. Chapter 10, verse 15, fools are so exhausted by little work that they can't even find their way home. Um, many of you perhaps know my family and I have relocated not long ago, some months ago, to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, so far, really liking it. It's beautiful. It's sunny. I mean, literally today, it's 70-some degrees out. I just went and bought scooters for my young kids, and they are just flying up and down the road, enjoying what is an amazing winter day. But when we get out to go somewhere, well, we're still finding our way around, doing pretty good. But there's a lot of places. I just don't know how to get there. I am. I'm just lost because I've never been there. I've never been to that place, never been to that neighborhood. Don't know. So what you do, you plug into your phone an address. This is where I want to go. And then what uh, my dear friend Siri does, she, uh, she really cares about me and my family, so she's very good about this. She uh, reverse engineers a plan to get me from where I am to where I want to be. We call those directions. What he's talking about here is somebody who's out traveling, but they don't have a destination. They don't have any directions. They can't even find their way home. And, and this is a, a big way of seeing your life. <clears throat> a wise person says, this is where I want to go with my life. You ask a fool, they're like, I don't know. I don't have any destination, any goal, any objective, any telos, any end in mind. I don't know. Well, it's hard to make a plan when there's no destination. It's hard to have directions when there's no destination. And some of you are exhausted. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> I don't mean to shame you and berate you and beat you, but what he says is you can get really exhausted. And there's some people who just are like, I am so tired, but I'm not getting anywhere. Well, it may be because you don't have a destination or directions. You don't know where you're going or what you want or what you're doing. And here, this is the difference between a wish and a goal. <clears throat> a wish is a place you want to go. A goal is actually inclusive of a plan with steps. You see the difference? Well, I want to be married someday. <clears throat> how? I don't know. I don't have a plan. I want to work in the tech industry. Well, how? I don't know. I don't have a plan. I want to serve the Lord in ministry one day. How? I don't know. I don't have a plan. How are you going to get there? I don't know. I'm just going to walk around and maybe I'll just bump into a spouse or a career or a ministry opportunity. Okay, maybe God and his providence will do that but likely not. In the same way, maybe you could just start walking and end up at an awesome place, but the odds are you're just going to be exhausted, frustrated, and lost. And so we end up wasting a lot of time and energy making no progress. So my question is, do you have a clear picture of what you want for your life? Do you have a plan for how to get there? Some of you, it's not that you lack effort. You just don't know what you're doing or where you're going. So rather than just continuing to do what you've always done, maybe it's time to pull back and ask, where am I going? What am I doing? And what is my plan to get there? Some directions. This is silence, solitude, seeking wise counsel, making a plan. 
reverse engineering life, defining it forward, living it backward, trying to figure out how am I going to get there? Principle number six, celebrate after the game. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. What sorrow for the land ruled by a servant, the land whose leaders feast in the morning. Happy is the land whose king is a noble leader and whose leaders feast at the proper time to gain strength for their work, not to get drunk. Here's what he's saying, and it's comparing foolish people and wise people. And none of us can say, I'm a wise person, because that's a very foolish thing to say. And the truth is, we all have the aspects of our life in which we're foolish and aspects of our life in which we're wise. And this is where we need friends. So where we're foolish, the wise can help us. And where they're foolish, we can be wise for them. But as a general rule, what he's saying is fools are irresponsible. A foolish person starts their day with play. Sleep in. Maybe hungover, distracted, still drinking. So busy with hobbies and activities and social media and shenanigans that you never really get very productive. You miss your deadlines, you're forgetful, disorganized, can't be depended upon for the things that matter because your work is never done. In this way, you might be the life of the party, but it's just because you're the court jester. In this way, a foolish person is like an athlete who celebrates so much before the game, they don't even make it onto the field. I uh, lettered in football and baseball when I was in high school, public school. And when I was... Uh, young, I think maybe a freshman, I made the varsity baseball team. And sometimes after a big win, the guys would go out drinking. I didn't drink. I didn't really have any alcohol until I was about 30, but they would go out and drink after a big game, drink beer and hang out and drive their Camaros and do what teenage boys did in the 80s. And uh, I'll never forget one game. It was a later game. It was a night game. It was going to be under the lights somewhere. So the guys had beer in the back of the car and in the trunk. And these teenage guys thought, well, we'll drive to the game. We'll have a few beers before the game. I'm not saying either is a good idea. But these guys drank a little too much. And a couple of them, they didn't even really make it through the game. I think, if memory serves me correct, a few of them were feeling pretty sick. And one might have puked, and rather than running around the bases, they're sort of meandering around the bases, and good luck hitting a curveball after a couple of beers. It's hard enough if you're sober. The big idea is this. Celebrate after the game. Now, I'm not saying get drunk or anything of that nature, sort, or kind. But you probably shouldn't get up in the morning... And have a checklist of what are all the fun things I can do today. And if I have any time left, then I'll do the things I'm supposed to do. See, a wise person is responsible. A wise person starts their day off with productivity, not play. A wise person is not opposed to taking a day off, going out for a fun night with friends or having a good time. But a wise person knows those things are a reward and a celebration after the work is done. In this way, a wise person is like an athlete who celebrates after the game is won. They're like a soldier who has the ticker tape parade after the war is won, not before. Are you prone, here's the question, to get the most important and hardest things out of the way 
first thing every day or procrastinate and do fun things rather than first things. You know what I'm talking about? This is the college kid who did, you know, here was their to-do list. Uh, Frisbee golf, eat cake, um, order a burrito, take a nap, watch a video, surf the internet, find cat videos on YouTube. Oh my gosh, it's three o'clock in the morning and I have a final tomorrow. Where's my textbook? Principle number seven, get it done. Or to quote <clears throat> that great philosopher of our age, get her done. Uh, chapter 10, verse 18 says, laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. Um, like I said, we recently moved. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever been out looking for a house to buy or rent or an apartment or a condo to buy or rent, a place to live? It's kind of shocking, isn't it? When people actually let you into where they've lived and you look around and ask yourself, how did any human being endure existence here? It's hard to believe the conditions that some people live with. It's, it's remarkable to see um, certain living conditions that people tolerate. It's like, why, why was, the, I don't understand. Like when we were looking here in Arizona, um, there was one uh, bathroom I walked into and you couldn't really open the door because it opened the wrong way right into the toilet. And so I guess if you were uh, like a 14 year old ballerina, you could use that bathroom because you were skinny enough to slide through and you could pirouette around the corner. But a dude like me ain't gonna happen, Jack. It's like, I can't believe that somebody hung this door and and it had been there, you could tell, for a really, 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 really long time. And somebody just sort of put up with it. That's what he's talking about, that there are things in our life that we just sort of tolerate and put up with. And it, it just doesn't make any sense. This is why when you go to sell your house, you have to do all this work on it. Because the person moving in says, well, I'm not going to put up with the stuff you put up with. And when it comes to a home, one little leak can ruin your whole house. All of a sudden, next thing you know, it's coming down the light fixtures. There goes your electrical. Now you've got mold on the walls and you've got dry rot in the studs. And, and now the roof, roof is collapsing and, and, and now things are off kilter. Oh, and it's on the furniture. And it, now the water is coming down on the floor and now your floor is all infected. And next thing you know, your whole house is just a total heap. Why? Because of one small leak. Life is like that. Life is like that. There are things that we get used to, we get accustomed to, we tolerate. These are people, actions, behaviors, inconsistencies, irregularities, sinful behaviors, foolish thinking, and sometimes it's even our physical space. You can tell a lot about a person by their physical space. I was talking with someone many years ago. They were a very, 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 very successful business person with a lot of employees and resources. And uh, I said, well, just tell me some things you do when you're going to hire somebody. So one of the first things I do is I want to see their personal space. If I can see their home or if I can get a ride with them in their car, it tells me a lot about a person by how they keep their personal space. Hmm. He said, if they're disorganized, if they're a mess, if they can put up with certain odors and inconveniences and certain things that are out of order and inconsistent. He said, if I drive in their car and the check engine light is on and there's a month of, you know, fast food wrappers in the back seat or cigarette butts falling out of the uh, ashtray or the treads worn thin on the tires um, or the brakes have been squeaking for a long time because the pads are worn down to the rot rotors, he's saying, I won't hire that person. 
I don't want someone that is not going to keep up with their responsibilities and can't just get it done. Hmm. What Solomon is saying is, if things are not well kept, the problem might be laziness, where you're so busy wasting time on unimportant things that you're risking everything. So is your personal life in order? Is your physical environment in order? Are you someone who is lazy and uh, letting important things in your life just go? Maybe it's time to get it done. Principle number eight, stack up the cash. Ecclesiastes 10.19, this is one of my favorite verses actually in the whole Bible. I quote it all the time. Um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. A party gives laughter, wine gives happiness, and money gives everything. Ecclesiastes 10.19. One of the translations that I remember off the cuff says, uh, Food is good for the stomach and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. So I like to pull that one out. Money is the answer for everything. I don't know if you know this. Stuff on the earth tends to cost money. And here's what Solomon's saying. There's nothing wrong with going to parties and having a glass of wine. Jesus did. Jesus did. But even better is having extra cash cash. Not credit, not assets, cash. See, the wise person does all they can to stack up some cash so that when a need, a crisis, or an opportunity arises, they can respond quickly. You get sick, cash will help. You get unemployed, cash will help. You get sued, cash will help. Money can't solve everything, but it can help with a lot of things. So are you someone who lives within your means and stacks up some cash on the side? If you're always running everything to the red line, you're going to be in trouble. And especially when an economic downturn comes, everything gets on sale, starting with luxury goods and real estate. That's the time to buy. But that's only possible for those who have stacked up cash. Principle number 10, don't undermine authority. Chapter 10, verse 20, never make light of the king, even in your thoughts. Because hmm. see, it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we guard our hearts, we don't have to worry about our words. I'm someone who said things I totally regret. I assume you are too. And the problem wasn't just my mouth, it was my heart. And that way, my heart makes the music and my mouth is just the speaker. Don't make light of the king even in your thoughts and don't make fun of the powerful even in your own bedroom for a little bird might deliver your message and tell them what you said. That little bird might be Twitter. This verse echoes a statement we have in our own culture. A little birdie told me. Hmm. The point is that those who are under authority are inevitably going to be frustrated with those who are in authority and ready to rant and rave at any point. Uh, this can be kids who are frustrated with mom and dad, mom who is frustrated with her husband, an employee who's sick of their boss, a citizen who would trade their president in for a circus clown because at least that would be interesting, or a Christian who wishes they had a different, better pastor. But what we say, sometimes even privately or under our breath, has a way of coming back to haunt us. 
word eventually gets back around to those who we have made fun of and or criticized or ran it against, and it only hurts us and it hurts them. There's no winner. Who are you most prone to vent, leak, joke, or rant about? Boy, we live in a day, right, when you just get all fired up and then tell the universe what you think. And there it is, forever, for everyone. I've certainly done this in regrettable ways. I'm sure perhaps you have too. And his principle for wise people is don't undermine authority, especially when you're frustrated and pecking away at your phone. Principle number 10, be generous. Chapter 11, verse 1, send your grain across the seas and in time profits will flow back to you. There's a little debate about this. Some think that he's talking about diversifying your portfolio and investing overseas and spreading your wealth into international investments so that you'll get a good return on investments. That might be true. Some translations say, uh, cast your bread upon the waters. That is, I think, possibly more likely. This is a tough section of original Hebrew, and I won't pretend to be a scholar, but I did read the scholars. And in that day, uh, bread was more like a wafer cracker, um, and it would float on the water for a while before it sank. So have this picture in your mind. Someone's sitting on the shore of a body of water, let's call it a lake, tossing crackers out to the ducks and birds to enjoy. Then you get the word picture, right? The ducks and the birds are hungry. You start flinging crackers out into the water. What do they do? All the hungry birds, they flock in and they are fed by you. The big idea here is that there are people that we know that have needs. They may be in our own family. They may be in our own community. They may be in our own church. In addition, there are relief organizations and missions around the country, around the world that are helping people with very practical things like food and water and shelter. My kids and I, for years, we've had uh, children that we sponsor. They each get children that they sponsor and we give gifts and we support them and we write letters to them. Just want the kids to know that. We have a budget where we give money away. We just do. And my kids know about this budget, and they give money away too. And when there's a need that arises, we just meet it. We like to. Uh, the big idea is when you're up, help those who are down. And who knows, if you're down, maybe then it'll be their turn to be up, and they'll help you too. So who has been generous to you? And who do you need to be generous with? And God often provides these opportunities. I, I kid you not, as I was uh, putting the finishing touches on these thoughts before I sat down here with the mic to just chat with you, I got an email from someone who loves their child and their child is in danger and they need to be able to go help their child. And so they needed money and they weren't asking me for money. They were asking me for prayer. Please pray for my child who is in danger and separated from us. Well, I'm not going to just pray. I'm going to send them a check and get them to be with their child. Because, see, we can all pray, but there are opportunities that we need to answer our own prayers. 
And we can't just say, well, I'll pray for you that that need gets met. Sometimes God's like, I want you to answer that prayer that you prayed and help that person in a practical way. And you know what? It's more blessed to give than receive, the Bible says. We don't give so that we would be blessed. We give because it's a blessing to give. And God's more blessed than anyone because God's given more than anyone. And it's a great joy and honor and blessing to give. So be generous. Principle number 11, have a financial life raft. He says in 11.2, but divide your investments among many places for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. It's interesting how 3,000 years ago in their culture, they had these little pithy, tweetable, fortune cookie-like proverbial quotes. And in our day, we have our own version. So our version of this is, do not put all your eggs in one basket. The point is to diversify your investments. A foolish person puts all of their financial security in one place, whereas a wise person spreads their wealth and investments around. Why? Well, because if one thing fails and the other do not, you're financially hurting, but you're not financially dying. So if you've got all your money in real estate, it may go really well for you when the real estate market runs its seven to 10 year up cycle. But then when the bottom falls out, like it did a few times in the past decade, you're done, you're upside down, you're bankrupt, you're in ruins. But if you diversify your investments, if you spread them out wisely, then you are reducing your risk. Have you invested your wealth wisely? Principle number 12 is bad things just happen. Chapter 11, verse 3, when clouds are heavy, the rains come down. When a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. What he's saying is there are things out of your control. Bad things out of your control. Some things you can predict, you can see them coming like a rain storm rolling in. You can tell. Clouds get dark, wind picks up, storm is coming. Some bad things that happen you cannot predict, like a tree falling suddenly and unexpectedly. It's upright one moment, the next moment it's fallen over. We had this a lot at our home in Seattle. Lots of trees on our property and every once in a while the dog would go missing. You go out, you find oh, a limb fell, a tree fell, crushed a section of fence and the dog is off to the races. And you can't predict that happening. You don't know. The point is that you have to, need to have margin in your plan. This includes your budget, your schedule, and your energy. Things take longer. That's why you, you, you got to say, well, from here to there is a 20-minute drive. Well, leave 30 minutes because something's going to happen. Well, that home repair costs $100,000. Well, you better put 8, 10, 12, 14% margin in your budget because something's going to go over price. Bad things happen in this fallen world and we cannot always account for them. This is why every builder knows to put a percentage of margin in every build project. You're not going to nail your budget. This is why in your personal home budget, you, you've got to have some slush. Why? Things happen, and you can't foresee or predict them. And if we do not accept this inevitable fact in a fallen and broken world, the bad things are coming our way, we're quickly overextended and frustrated, but the truth is we should have been wiser with our predictions and our preparations. Some of you just need to accept it's going to take longer, it's going to cost more, it's going to be harder, and I just need to factor that in and not get disappointed because everything was over budget or everything was late or nothing came together the way that it was supposed to. 
Principle number 13, eventually you got to jump. Chapter 11, verse 4. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. The only sure thing is that there's no sure thing. That's what he's saying. If you're a person who is waiting for the perfect mate, you will be single forever. If you're a person who's waiting for the perfect job, you'll be unemployed forever. If you're a person waiting for the perfect timing, you will never act. Uh, this summer, I brought the kids uh, eastern Washington. We rented a boat, went inner tubing, took them out to this area where there's this big cliff, this big rock cliff, and kids can jump off the cliff. We had life jackets on them. And then they fall down, you know, they're Stomach's up in their throat. It's very exhilarating. And then, boom, you crash into the freezing cold water from the ice runoff from the, from the snowmelt on a hot summer day. Well, if you're a kid and you stand there too long and you get up in your head, oh, wait, the wind's not right. Oh, wait, the tie's not right. Oh, wait. Uh, my footing's not right. I mean, you could sit there all, literally, I, I, I won't tell you which one of my kids, but I had a kid stand there for what felt like four presidential elections. Some of my kids got up there, just didn't even think about, boom, jump, hit the water, yay. Other kids looked and they started running the variables in their mind and eventually they jumped. A couple of my kids, my gosh, I mean, they were they were running every conceivable variable. I mean, it, it felt like they were an actuary for an insurance company. Like they are running all the numbers in their mind and all the downside and what's the wind and what's the waves and what's the risk and how far do I got to jump and what's my footing and how much do I weigh and how far down will I go and how much breath will I, I mean, and they never jumped. What he's saying is this, if you're waiting for the perfect opportunity, you can wait forever. Sometimes you got to just jump. There's the opportunity you did the best you could, go for it. Principle number 15, don't spiritualize everything. 11.5, just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. You know what? The wind kind of does its thing. Good luck putting a chart together to uh, predict it all in great detail. Um, any of you women who are listening to this and are pregnant, well, congratulations on your blessing. But isn't it crazy how the baby grows in your womb? I still remember my wife being pregnant with each of our five kids just thinking, this is the craziest thing. This is a person and in her is another person. This is, this is crazy. You start thinking, how does this work? Like how... How does this baby with lungs live in the water, in the amniotic fluid, and get nutrition from the mother and grow at the right time and develop all the right parts? Like, it's amazing. The, the psalmist says that we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. What he's saying is, there are things we just don't understand. No, we can get a C-section and, excuse me, not a C-section, um, tells you how many babies I've had. Um, what do they call those? Come on, come on, come on, public school brain mark. Um, an ultrasound. There you go. You get what you pay for the podcast free. You can go in for an ultrasound and you could see some of what's going on in mama's stomach, but you still don't understand fully how it all works or, or how God makes all of this intricate process 
work together at precise timing to bring forth healthy life. It's amazing. It's amazing. What he's saying is, there's a lot of things we just got to say, I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know how God does that. I don't know. Paul has a similar question in the New Testament. He asks the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? And he's not expecting some guy in Bible college in the back of the class to raise his hand and say, I do, I do. Some things we just don't know. Wisdom dictates that we don't pretend to know everything or see everything or know everything that God is doing. Well, people are like, oh, when God closes a window, he opens a door. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just close the window. I don't know. Well, if God gave you a setback, it's because he's got a comeback. Well, that'd be great, but I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. There are certain times things, we just don't know what God's doing. And we don't need to spiritualize and we don't need to pretend. Well, I'm sure God has a plan. I hope so, but I'm not going to pretend to know what that is. And wisdom dictates that we don't need to fully understand and spiritualize everything. Just every day we wake up, we say, okay, Lord, give me wisdom. Let me make the best decision I can with the information I have and try to do the right thing every day. We should do our homework and prepare for whatever is next as best we can. But the truth is we don't know what tomorrow holds or what God is doing. So let me just get the pressure off of you religious folks that are trying to sort of, you know, make God look better and explain everything away and comfort yourself with a verse that doesn't mean anything, at least insofar as it applies to the circumstances that you are dealing with. Of course, every verse means something. But we don't need to pretend and spiritualize everything. Some things are just, I don't know. Maybe something happened that was God's will, or it's just a befuddling, awful mystery that we don't yet understand. Life is practical, and sometimes the best thing is to be wise and not pretend to be more spiritual than we are, and just say, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to take all the facts and information as I see it and make the best decision I can. Give me wisdom, and if I learn more tomorrow, I'll do the best I can with that information as well. That's all you got. That's all you got. And that's okay. You do the best you can with what you got and don't pretend to know or oversee more than you do. Number 15, we're winding around the bend, coming to the end. Keep busy while you wait. 11.6, plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or maybe both. It's using a farming metaphor analogy. Plant a lot of crops, see which one takes root. Right? It's like make a lot of investments, see which one brings a good return. Pursue a lot of relationships, see which ones make good friends. If you're a single guy, get to know some gals in an appropriate way and see if one wouldn't make a good wife. For the unemployed gal, Apply to a lot of jobs, send out a lot of resumes, make a lot of connections, do a lot of networking and see. Maybe one works, maybe two works, maybe three work. I don't know. Wait to see what happens. For the investor, try a few different options and see which one yields the best return on investment. What he's saying is the worst thing is to invest everything in one thing and then just sit around and wait for it. So like, I'm a single person and I'm waiting on one person. Well, I'm not saying you should date around, but you should get to know a lot of people and just see. You know, see what your options are. See if anybody else is interested in you. Go out on a bunch of job offers. See which one sticks. Visit a couple churches. See which one feels like home. 
There's always something in life to be doing. That's what he's saying. So the questions are, what things are out of your control and you're waiting for resolution? Are saying, there's nothing I can do. i got to wait to see. Well, then the question is, how can you stay busy in the meantime? How can you stay busy in the meantime? For the single person that loves the Lord and wants to get married, it may be, well, I'm going to read my Bible and study and pray and save some money and get to know some people until God brings me a spouse. I'm going to travel because I can. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on a missions trip because when I'm pregnant with my 14th kid, and that's our plan, uh, some of you might say, well, then I can't go to whatever country I want to visit. Now that I'm single, I can. Okay, great. Stay busy in the meantime until God brings along a nice man with a 14-passenger van. Uh, go on your mission trip. Figure out what it is you want to do. It's okay. That's what he's saying. Stay busy in the meantime. Just because the thing hasn't come, the job, the relationship, the opportunity, the house, the clear path, doesn't mean there's nothing to do. And sometimes it's not working on the thing, it's God working on you and you pulling aside and saying, okay, Lord, what in my character do I need to learn? What do you teach me about suffering, long-suffering, patience, love, fortitude, perseverance? What do you want me to learn in this season, Lord? Sabbath and rest, to rest up for what's next? Okay, that sounds good to me too. But keep busy while you wait. Make the waiting time meaningful time. Well, let me close with this, dear friend. I'm going to go play with my kids. It's super, super, super nice out today. The wisdom literature in general, this is Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Job, Psalms, uh, James. And this section in particular, think of it like a, a wise parent or grandparent who loves you. So think about mom who loves you, dad who loves you, grandma who loves you, grandpa who loves you. Think of them as godly, holy, wise, helpful. They've been through some stuff. They're wise. And when they tell you something, it's really insightful. Like that. Well, God is a loving father. God is a loving father. And uh, understanding the wisdom literature understands that you connect with the father heart of God. And God is a loving father. And when he talks to us about the particular and practical stuff of life, it's his way of helping us flourish and live a good life. This is because God, our good father, like every good father, he really loves his kids. He knows where we are prone to folly and wander and make mistakes and trip over our own feet and do it again because we didn't learn last time. And so he's a father who approaches us very kindly. He has love in his eyes and a smile on his face, and he puts an arm around our shoulder, looks us in the eye, he draws us, pulls us gently near to himself, gives us a kiss on the top of the head, no matter how old we are. It's always good to get a kiss from dad. He says, okay, I love you. I don't think you really understand this. And that's okay. I didn't either. That's what a good dad would say. God the Father has nothing to learn. But it's like a, a dad who looks you in the eye and says, I'm here to help. I understand what you're dealing with and going through. In fact, I've dealt with this myself. And there are some things that I want to share with you because I really love you. And I want to help you. And I don't want you to have to learn everything the hard way because I care about you. 
So make some notes and give me your ear and take what I share to heart and take the principles and think through your life and the methods and ways you can apply them because I love you and I want good for you and I'm a little concerned about you but I have hope for you. That's the Father Heart of God. And that's the tonality, I believe, behind this section of Ecclesiastes, where a really old man pulls from all the experience of his life and gives us 15 principles by which we can walk in wisdom and are saved the great frustration of spending our entire life doing the practical, financial, emotional, relational, spiritual equivalent of butter knife logging. Thanks for your time.